Earn your graduate degree at Fordham University, now offering an MA in Catholic Theology, a Master of Theological Studies, and a PhD in Theology. Fordham is a national leader in theological education, rooted in the Jesuit vision of social justice. Learn more at fordham.edu slash theologygrad. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. It's great to be with you, Ashley, and often, sometimes we have two drinks. Yes. <laughs> how, how do we want to get into this? Should we just get it? Yeah, let's just uh, go right there. Wait, um, you're supposed to ask me how my weekend was. Oh, yes. We have a lot to get into this week, but before we do that, we have to talk about your weekend because I saw an Instagram, not posted by you, posted by a former bachelorette. Of you doing karaoke. That's a capital B bachelorette. <laughs> yeah. Right? Okay. Like Caitlin Bristow. Bristow? Bristol? I don't yeah. I didn't know who this person was <laughs> until like six days ago. I definitely watched her seasons, but they all kind of blur together. But you were to Nashville, which is like that's where all bachelors go to retire. That's right. <laughs> Bachelorettes and bachelors go to retire. And you just happen to be at the same party as one. So I yeah, I <laughs> am a fiend for karaoke anytime that happens. Um and I went ahead and sang Conte Partiro by Andrea Bocelli, which is my... Might have heard you sing that once or twice before. It's my party trick. <laughs> um, but it, it it tends to surprise people because it's a high-risk, high-reward karaoke song. You know, people are like, is this guy, is this guy really going to do it? And I know it as the song from Step Brothers. So for me, it's a big fun thing. Um, but yeah, evidently... Uh, Former Bachelorette was in the. It was funny. I was just. I was getting texts the next day that you know, 1.9 million people had seen my karaoke performance. She didn't tag me. I was just referred yeah, to I'm as. Yeah, I'm trying to find the actual. But she. Uh, she oh, she, here, here we go. <laughs> oh wait, no. It was this guy understood the assignment for karaoke. So uh, that's my claim this to guy. fame. I am this guy in Bachelor Nation. What an honor. So cheers. cheers. All right. So now what? Are now we getting into what we're drinking. So uh, our first, the, the main guest this week, um, who you'll hear in a little bit, uh, is Father Dave Dwyer. We'll get his bio. So we had Negronis with him, and then we also have someone for Signs of the Times who recommended a Paloma to us, which is appropriate because we just celebrated Gaudete Sunday, where the priests wear pink. This is a pink drink, and it was truly terrible. Um, which is no fault of the recommendation. I, I just think you took some some shortcuts. Is that right? I did. Um... Midtown is a bit of a grocery desert. Yes. So I'm going to start there. <laughs> All right. So the recipe called for tequila, grapefruit juice, or fresca, because it's a grapefruit citrus soda. Yep. Um, fresh lime juice, salted rim. Yep. I got a just generic from CVS pink grapefruit sparkling ice drink. Zero sugar. Zero sugar. But it has vitamins and antioxidants. Yep. Um, and and that, that served as the base of our drink. And you also tried to salt the rim, which I I thought you did. You were impressed when I, I first was, started. I was, but then you handed it to me, and the entire glass was sticky. And I, now I was like, "Did a four year old make this drink? What's happening?" Well, more for me then. Fair enough. Well, uh, thank you for trying. <laughs> yeah. Cheers. Cheers again. <laughs> this is like the Irish coffee gate when people. Do you remember that when when I used instant coffee? instant coffee and yeah. whiskey and that's it for your Irish coffee? People were hopefully horrified. I won't get as much hate mail this time. I hope not. I hope not. Uh, who are we talking to this week? All right. So as you mentioned, we are talking to Father Dave Dwyer. Uh, Father Dave is the executive director of Busted Halo and media outreach of the Paulist Fathers, and he's the host of Busted Halo Show, which comes out weeknights on Sirius XM Radio. And he has a new book that we're talking to him about, which is called Mass Class, Your Questions Answered. Yeah, this is a really fun conversation because I feel like Catholics, we we go to Mass every week and there's a lot of things that we just know intuitively because we do them all the time. But we very rarely ask the question of like, where did that come from? Why do we do it this way? Should we be holding hands during the Our Father? Should we be holding them but not holding hands? Like the one, the one where you kind of halfway hold it up but don't touch your neighbor's hand. Some people... Put their hands together. I like the palms up. Palms up. That's my go-to, actually. Yeah. It's just like right next to my chest, but palms up. Mm -hmm. Because I'm not really sure what to do, and that seems like a good, safe halfway. We get into a couple questions like that with Father Dave. It's a lot of fun. He's got a great, great radio voice. He's been doing radio for a long time. Uh, and enjoy thoroughly enjoyed our Negroni and mass conversations with him. So stick around for that. 
And in Signs of the Times, we're going to talk about the end of Catholic news services, domestic operations, which happens effective December 30th. We actually bring on one of their longtime journalists, Carol Zimmerman, and talk about what what we're going to miss when we no longer have CNS. Yeah, so CNS was it is still a hundred year old news wing of the U.S. Church. Uh, it's under the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Um, it's a journalistic enterprise, and it has editorial independence uh, from the U.S. bishops. So even though they are in the same building and they're the, they're the same company, and they've been sort of for a long time a wire service for. Uh, Catholic media all over the place. We use them in America Magazine here. Uh, your local Catholic paper, if you still have one of those, probably heavily relies on CNS. Um, and its closure is really part of this long trend that we're seeing also in the secular world of local papers, longstanding newspapers that are shutting down due to financial concerns. So stick around for both those conversations. But first, we have a few words about our sponsor this week. We all deserve to continue learning and have access to trustworthy information, and that's why Wondrium is our favorite educational platform. With audio and video courses, documentaries, tutorials, and more, the list of things we can learn on Wondrium is endless. I just listened to The Surprising Origins of Christmas Traditions to get me in In the the season. Yeah, Yeah, very well. Um, And, you know, we all have our traditions, but, you know, some of them are quirky to our families, some of them, you know, just... You got handed down. But I didn't realize that a bunch of our traditions actually come from Victorian Britain. And the things that you think of as core to Christmas, like singing Christmas carols, giving gifts, uh, decorating Christmas trees. So I enjoyed learning that on Wondrium, and I think you would too. Now, does going to IHOP on Christmas Eve, (laughs) is that uh, come from Victorian Britain as well? Oh, no. That's that's straight from Arlington, Virginia. That's straight from the McKinless family? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, it, well, you're going to not find out about going to IHOP, but you'll find out about all these Christmas traditions and more um, because Wondream has thousands of hours of vetted information that you're not going to get anywhere else, all from the brightest minds in their fields. Plus, the Wondream app makes it so easy. Pick a program, watch or listen on any device, anytime, anywhere. You can learn on the go while you're driving, at the gym, cooking dinner. And we know that you'll love Wondrium as much as we do. And right now, our listeners can get this limited time offer. Get two years of Wondrium for the price of one. That is a fantastic deal. Sign up today through our special URL to get this great offer. Go to wondrium.com slash Jesuitical. Again, that's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Jesuitical. Wondrium.com slash Jesuitical. Joining us from Washington, D.C. is Carol Zimmerman. Carol has worked at Catholic News Service for 30 years, reporting on education, health, and more recently, the Supreme Court. And she has also co-hosted the CNS podcast, Communion and Church and Race. Welcome to Jesuitical, Carol. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thanks so much for uh, coming on the show. Um, We're trying to, like, mark this occasion because it's, it's pretty momentous in the in the life and history of the Catholic Church in this country, um, with CNS closing at the end of this year. Could you just tell our audience briefly what CNS is and um, what what its mission has been and how long it's been around? Oh, sure. We just had our 100th anniversary, and we kind of call ourselves the Associated Press of the Catholic Press. Each day we send out stories, videos, and photos to our client newspapers, magazines across the country and around the world, but mostly in the United States. And then the client newspapers, magazines pick up what they want to run from what we send. They can run whatever they want each day. So we kind of are a clearinghouse in a way. We send out a lot, but we also get from our client newspapers. Uh, they might send a story that has a national um, perspective, and we also run that. So we send that back out. And when you're looking at the U.S. church, what is your guiding mission? What are the kind of stories you're trying to tell? And how does that fit into you know the larger church in the United States? We try to be a voice in the public square that um, what are Catholics doing? What are Catholics saying, especially about hot button issues? For example, what, what's a recent hot button issue that you might have covered at CNS? Well, abortion is always one, but also I've been covering a lot of death penalty, just mainly because I've been covering the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court has weighed in on the death penalty. We're a very small staff. I should also mention that. And we've shrunk in the years. So it's about four or five of us that are just covering the church at large. We, we try to cover the big uh, Catholic social teaching, I guess, and how how is that playing out in, in our modern world and especially in politics? How are Catholics speaking out about 
issues they think aren't right or are right um, based on Catholic social teaching. It's pretty much that in a nutshell. And we were talking off mic a little bit before we got started, and Ashley mentioned our jobs, Ashley and I's jobs are about to get a lot harder because, you know, at the front of our show, we try to sift through the Catholic News of the Week. Um, but you you do a lot of that first pass for us, right? We rely a lot on the reporting that CNS has done to make, to make mm-hmm. our audience informed. And so I'm wondering if you could just like further describe, because one thing we found is that a lot of our listeners, especially our younger listeners, they're not really consuming a lot of Catholic news elsewhere. Um, right. And so what is the current landscape of maybe like, do, does each diocese have its own paper? Um, we work at America. That's a national magazine. Um, what, what's all out there, the type of places that you would have supplied stories and photos and videos to? I guess I also think that we're a broad spectrum because, let's say, National Catholic Reporter, NCR, they pick up our stories and they have also said, ah, what are we going to do? Our Sunday visitor has also covered, uh, taken up our stories, but they are now forming their own OSV news that will take up the mantle from what we have done. They're going to try to do, I guess, something similar with um, what Catholic News Service has done over the years. U.S. Catholic is a magazine that would be one of our clients. Oh, in Canada, National Catholic Register, and then um, just across the country, the the big Catholic papers like Angelus in Los Angeles. I was going to say Catholic New York, but that is recently closed. And Catholic paper in um, the Sentinel in Portland has also closed. So there's a little bit of a trend there. You're seeing that um, some Catholic newspapers are closing also. Yeah. And I, I think one thing that maybe people who don't work in media realize, because I didn't realize this uh, before I worked at America, is is the role that wires play. Like, I didn't really know that I was consuming a lot of news from these associated press until I came to America and was like, oh, all of these stories are filling all of these different papers. And right. CNS filled that role at at the diocesan level. So at that, you know, I'm from Arlington, so the, the Catholic, oh, Catholic, Catholic Herald down there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. So some of these papers are already closing. What do you imagine is going to happen when they lose the the source that CNS was for for national news coverage? Um, well, I'm hoping that others will take up the mantle. I'm going to be working at the tablet in Brooklyn, and I am going to be their national correspondent. Also, OSV News is also carrying on. Um, they are going to be in a sense of the wire service that we have done. We'll see how that how that plays out. But they intend to do. They call themselves the New Catholic News Service, so um, that may continue in that way. But I hope that people see that if people that have told us that there will be a void, I hope that that void is not left uncovered because, as as you guys know, there's so there's a lot of voices right now. I mean, there's a lot of people on all sides that could kind of fill in. And um, there's a lot of opinion, like fake news, <laughs> yeah. right? And it's not necessarily yeah. news. I mean, we mm-hmm. we pretty much prided ourselves low these years that I've been here, 30 years of just of being neutral, just the facts, just tell the story and let, I mean, if you have an opinion one way or the other, you could form that yourself. The news that we give, we try not to have a slant. I mean, people have complained sometimes that they pick up the slant, but we don't, we try not to have it. It's, tr- it's just straight and narrow. This is what someone said. This is what the church says. I mean, if someone says something that's totally off, like they'll say, oh, the church is, I don't know, pro-death penalty, let's say. And we had that in a quote. Well, we would explain in the next line, the church actually teaches, blah, 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 you know. Sure. We would explain that. And people can always like turn to Jesuitical to hear hot takes, right? Right. We're not there doing the hard or shoelace reporting that you all were doing. But some diocesan newspapers have decided to uh, also shut down in the wake of this. I mean, Catholic New York, it would have been, I mean, unthinkable a few years back to think that they were going to shut down. You mentioned the Sentinel. What are Catholics in those dioceses missing when they they might have like their diocese might have a communications department. They might be putting out some like spirituality stuff. But when there's no no news reporting, what are we missing? I think it's a huge loss. I mean, I I just I believe in what we do. So I, I do feel like that's a loss. Um, you lose the big picture for one thing. Um, and also the sense that the church is a huge tent. I mean, there are people that have thoughts on such diverse topics, like some people are against something or something, some people are for something else. And I think what we have tried to do is say, um, just give a voice to all those people. And I mean, for what we can, the five people here, but to give that, to let people know what Catholics are saying about X, Y, or Z, about immigration, about other big issues. I want to get to 
you know, why the decision was made to close CNS. But first, I want to talk more broadly about um, what what CNS's relationship was with the bishops, because you 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 fell under the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Um, you were an organ of that larger body. And and some people might see that as, you know, maybe stifling your ability to do, you know, real hard hitting journalism. But I think on the flip side is you you had professional journalists who the bishops you know, trusted <laughs> and would talk to. So one concern I have going forward is, is, you know, the bishops aren't notorious for being like, you know, very open to the available to, to the press, to, to the press. Yeah. And with without CNS, is that is that going to be worse? Um, yeah. Just what what do you predict is going to happen? Wow. There? I hadn't really thought of that. We've been kind of, we also face our challenges trying to reach bishops, too. I guess you just have to keep keep pressing and keep ask, keep telling um, communications leaders that you need to hear from the bishops and maybe especially in this loss and this new time we, we we people need to hear what bishops have to say a lot of bishops were disappointed and said they hadn't heard that this was happening I think they want people to know what they're doing they don't want to be working just in a vacuum what's in the public record could you tell our audience why the bishops decided to close CNS what do we know that's the thing I don't think I don't know that much. I mean, it seems that we weren't really told. So, um, I mean, I think there is a new plan in the future. And I think, you know, we've been kind of given the line that, um, you know, print journalism is suffering, that we were losing money. We weren't really given a clear, uh, really a clear answer. So I I have this theory that's more like media sociological, um, that Catholics relied on sort of Catholic-specific newspapers and news sources when they were not as assimilated to the wider American mm-hmm. culture. And, and sort of as we, in, as in the church, became more assimilated, we took for granted sort of these, these identity-specific media outlets. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. you think there's anything to that, if that seems true to you. Because the flip side of that for me is, I think, as we see our generation get more secular and more secular, that people our age are going to like want to kind of there will be this like boomerang effect where we will seek these niche things. These you mean app- the ones who remain? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I think you're right. I think I think there was probably a comfort in that. Say when you if when it was that uh, Irish need not apply or whatever Catholics felt uh, persecuted. I think still the thing is that people don't know what Catholics are doing unless it's like something viral, like something great, like, oh, this cute nun was cheering on Loyola team or something. And and that's great. Yay. But there's also something horrible, you know, an abuse crisis that's big in the news. So maybe you're a Catholic in the United States and that's all you know, that there's a cute nun cheering for a team and there's some bad things that have happened. But there's so much more. It's so much more rich. There's so much more of a tapestry of how people are living out their faith and struggling with their faith or helping people. I just think it is important, especially for young people, to um, to make the connection. People that want to connect, what does my faith have to do with what's going on in the world, or what does my parents' faith have to do if I don't still believe? Like, like uh, recently, the death penalty um, issue, Cara, um, the Center for Applied Research in the United States, uh, I'm not the quite apostolate, a, right? You could correct. Center for Applied Research in the apostolate did a study last year that said 25% of Catholics knew that the Catholic Church had a teaching on the death penalty. What? I mean, um, how do people not know that? So I would think if they were reading their Catholic newspaper, they would know that the Catholic Church leaders have spoken about the dignity of, of people's lives, and, and they would have heard about Sister Helen Prejean, or they would have heard about people at prisons praying when people are being executed. But I think people just think they're in their own bubble. Maybe they think revenge is right and the church must say an eye for an eye, whatever. And so that's fine. But there's so much nuance. There's so much that uh, you're just missing if you don't. There's like a visibility that's yeah. lost from yeah. the church that that's alive. One thing I just want to highlight that, that you were saying um, is that, I don't know, Catholic news is not just for like political news junkies. Like I, I do think it's an important part of being and an informed Catholic. And, and it's not just a, it shouldn't just be like a hobby of like, you know, I, I read Catholic news so I can fight about it on Twitter. Like it is, <laughs> I, I think it should be a part of faith formation as, as, you know, adult Catholics in this country. Um, so I, 
I will I will miss your work at CNS, but I'm very happy to hear you are coming to Brooklyn or if, <laughs> if only remotely, but that your work will continue on for the Diocese of Brooklyn. Yeah, I'm excited about that. I also felt I did not want to just stop this line of work, so I'm happy to keep it going. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show to to unpack the story with us a little bit. Good luck with the rest of the, the end of the year, and we're going to look forward to following your work at the tablet. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun. It's fun to be on the other side. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Joining us in studio is Father Dave Dwyer. Father Dave is the executive director of Busted Halo, a media outreach of the Paulist Fathers, and the host of the Busted Halo show weeknights on Sirius XM. And his new book is Mass Class, Your Questions Answered. Welcome to Jesuitical, Father Dave. Very cool to be with all the Jesuits surrounding me. Oh, it's yeah. like, I feel Loyola in the room, Ignatius. <laughs> Pope Francis. Pope Francis yes. is watching. He's a Jesuit, that's right. Hey, yeah. what's up? Looking over your shoulder. I, we wouldn't let you forget that he's a Jesuit. So, <laughs> no, no, I suppose not. <laughs> um, I think this is a really timely book. I'm really excited that you came on the show to talk about it because uh, I feel like the pandemic broke a habit for a lot of people. Yeah. I, I mean, I even myself, I was particularly pious during college. And then <laughs> since then, I still, I think I made mass at least once a week and sometimes more. And I've even found like, it's been really hard to kick myself back into gear mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. since restrictions of having been lifted. Uh, is that something you're hearing from people that call into your show or that you work with in your ministry? For sure. I mean, I live and work over at St. Paul the Apostle Church across town here in New York City. And we've certainly seen a good number, as, as I imagine this would echo across our listening area for parishes ever, a good number of people come back, but not everybody. And not even necessarily this. It's, from my experience, there's not one particular demographic or subgroup that you can identify these people didn't return. It's kind of across the board and probably for a lot of different reasons. But you're right. I mean, this it happened at a at a time where in the U.S. already we are discovering that people are not as connected as to mass as, as has been in the past or that perhaps the church would like yeah. and also not as, you know, connected really sacramentally to the Eucharist. So this was in the, in the works even before pandemic. Uh, then it, you know, that made it a slam dunk though. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing I've heard from people is that they found they had this regular habit going every Sunday and then they stopped for reasons uh, beyond their control. And yet they, they found, um, ways to, you know, find community and and fulfill their prayer life and spirituality in ways that were different and maybe even more personally more meaningful yeah, for yeah, them during yeah, the pandemic. Yeah. So so your book does start with one section on, you know, why go to mass? Why go to mass? So, I, so, I we had to start with that, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so before, we, you also have very fun particulars about the mass, but let's start with that basic question. When when someone asks you, okay, I'm 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 meeting God throughout the week, why do I need to show up on Sunday? Well, if, if we're talking about a Christian God, uh, and obviously there's many experiences of God around our planet, but most people that I hear saying that are at least coming from a, a Christian upbringing or a Christian milieu. 
that if we're talking about Jesus, Jesus gathered people together and his mandate to us right before he died was that we serve one another. So it's it's fundamentally about the other. And it's certainly about, I mean, I say probably a couple of times in the book that mass is not about me, it's about we. And my spirituality is right. And, and I go on retreat and I will pray at a sunset too. And even sometimes those moments of private prayer might, in fact, inspire me to serve others. But boy, for us tangible, earthly humans, that that message gets hit a lot more home when I'm sitting next to somebody in the pew, a genuine real live person, and realize that this isn't all about me. It's about all of these other people and people that I don't know, people that maybe I don't like or don't agree with. And that that's why we, one of the reasons why we come together. I mean, the, the real, the big why from the church, and this is the, you know, first one, the question one that I start with is this, because God says that we should do it. <laughs> God never uses the word, you know, mass, at least not in the Old Testament. That's not translated as mass. But I mean, very clearly we see for thousands of years in tradition, people who believe in God carving out a day of their week to not do other stuff, but to focus on God and particularly together with others, with family, with community. And in the New Testament, Jesus says, okay, this is what I want you to do. So God tells us to do it in, in Genesis and Exodus. And then Jesus in the Gospels says, do this in memory of me. So we as Christians put that together and go, once a week, we need to do what he asks us to do. I was um, reminded of a joke that Timothy Radcliffe, great Dominican spiritual master, uh, opens. He has a book called Why Go to Church, and he opens with this joke. It's one Sunday, a mother shook her son awake, telling him it's time to go to church. No effect. Ten minutes later, get out of bed. You know, it's time to go. And he says, mother, I don't want to go. It's so boring. Why should I bother? And she says, for two reasons. One, you must go to church. And two, you're the bishop of this diocese. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, <laughs> I guess so. Um, so I, I, I think this is framed a lot as like an only lay people issue, um, but you, priests often have to say masses multiple times during weekends. Sometimes mm -hmm. they have to drive long distances between two parishes. Sure, sure. Um, you know, it's called an obligation for a couple of reasons, but like, you know, sometimes we're obliged to do hard things. Do you get the sense that people in ordained ministry also kind of like struggle with this idea of a Sunday obligation, or is that such a fundamental part of the vocation that it's mostly life-giving? Yeah, I mean, I don't know about, uh-oh, did I skip mass this Sunday? It's probably not too many priests that have the luxury to do that. But I talk in the book, I talk about if we use the word duty or obligation, what if we substituted a very similar word like commitment? And I use an example of a friend I know who gets up at five o'clock and does some sort of punishing form of, I don't know, P90X crazy, you know, doing social media from the car, all red and sweaty. And she doesn't do that because she likes to do it. She doesn't do it because it's entertaining or exciting. She does it because, and she also doesn't do it because some outside authority said you must do it. She does it because she's committed to it and you don't see you know, a reaction. You don't get a six pack after two days at the gym and it's getting up when you don't want to and making a commitment to it. So again, obviously the difference being that not every Catholic came to that themselves because they were, you know, heard something great on a Jesuitical podcast that they really should go to church. The church does say it's an obligation, but I mean, if that's a, if that's a dirty word uh, or unpalatable in our modern world, let's talk about other things that we can be committed to, even when we don't necessarily want to do it every single time. Yeah. So that that's the very big picture. So um, one thing I love about your book is that it zooms into those questions that like, you know, maybe Catholics have had but have been too embarrassed <laughs> to ask. Right, I, right, right. I certainly read some of them. and I was like, yeah, I've always wondered that. <laughs> like, I, I, yesterday at lunch, I had a priest, one of my brother priests, whose name I will not use, <laughs> who said, yeah, I've been reading your book every night before I go to bed. I'm learning some stuff. I'm like, oh, OK. <laughs> yeah, right. and, and to be fair, to be fair to him, yeah. I genuinely did as I was doing more research for the book because the book is called from questions that I answered on the radio show over the years. And when I'm answering the radio show, kind of like I am now, you're looking at me. I don't have notes. I don't have the Bible. I don't have the Roman Missal. So I kind of give the answer as best as I remember it. But when doing the book, you know, you kind of got to go, let's find some footnotes and whatnot. And there were some things that when I really dug into either the canon law or the general instruction on the Roman Missal, I'm like, oh, 
I didn't realize it was that or why it was. I mean, obviously, I don't think I was getting too many things wrong, but it's like, oh, that's the reason behind it. Yeah, I always love that experience where you're reading the Bible and you come across the line and you're like, oh, that's what we say in Mass. That, that's yeah, where it's coming from. It's like a Catholic-only experience, <laughs> yeah. I think, for sure. Yeah. Hey, that uh, sounds familiar. But it's, I, like, it's like when I have friends in town uh, here in New York City and we walk through Central Park and they go, Elf! That's where they shot Elf! Oh, that bothers, <laughs> yes. that drives me insane. I'm like, no, it's just from history. <laughs> my sister just... my sister loves to say, oh, the Brooklyn Bridge from Gossip Girl. And I say, no! <laughs> It's from the 19th century. <laughs> I, I do think like it's a common experience because we don't actually have a good place where we teach this to like regular everyday Catholics, right? Even even not even regular everyday Catholics, people studying for ordination to the priesthood. A lot of this stuff is just sort of like assumed knowledge. Is Do you think there's a place that would be better in catechesis for this? Like one time I remember in like growing up, they did like a teaching mass where mm-hmm. it was much slower and they talked about things mm-hmm. a little bit like that. Have you seen any good examples well, in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I was in Rome. The the, uh, the Pauls from the American Community Parish in Rome. So people that want mass in English, if they're either visitors or they're expats living over there for a while, um, and we did. I, the the pastor there said to me, "Hey, you know, since you got your new book, how about doing a, a little talk with the parents?" I'm like, "Sure, a little talk with the parents." Then, like, I woke up that morning, I found out it was like two hours. I'm like, two hours. So I'm like, "How about we do a teaching mass?" That'll that'll fill <laughs> some of the time. And, and it is. I mean, it's it's. For somebody that's been a priest for a while, even without having written a book or researched the general structure on the Roman Missal, to just kind of walk through and stop every couple of steps and go, oh, yeah, I do this without thinking about it, but maybe everybody out in the pews doesn't know. Here's what's happening up here because it's sometimes hard to see. Or here's why we do this, why we stand here and walk over here, why do we stand up and sit down and all that kind of stuff. So, so yes, I mean, I would agree with you on beyond just liturgical catechesis. I mean, fundamentally, our, our, mo- our model yeah, our model in the church is we, we teach kids Surprise. until they're like eight years old, you know, nine years old. And then, and so that means that people that are in their 40s, 50s, and sometimes even 60s and 70s have a eight-year-old impression of what the learnings of the church is. So imagine if you were, you know, got a master's degree in something and you still, your level that you learned at was the eighth grade. So we, I, I agree that we need to find other ways to do that. Hopefully during this time of Eucharistic revival, parishes and dioceses will find ways to engage people so that it's not just go to Mass, go home, and we can kind of dig in a little deeper. Yeah, so you've been listening to questions on the radio for, for many yeah. years. What's what's a question that surprised you, either with the frequency that it came yeah. up or just because yeah. it was like, wow, I've never even <laughs> thought of that? <laughs> I do have an answer to that. But first, I have one little question for you guys. Um, when I got here, you poured me a drink. Is there some time we drink the drinks? I know it's hard oh for the God. guests. Do we yes. drink? Please, yeah. Cheers. Yes. Can we get a thank <laughs> you for coming on? Oh, yeah. thank you. Oh, cheers. yeah. Because I'm sitting here, I go. There's a nice drink in front of me. I'm not supposed to drink this. Right? <laughs> uh, you asked me what my favorite cocktail was, and am I supposed to reveal this? Or is this no, top please. Secret? Okay. No. Um, and I said uh, Negroni, which I only came into more recently in life. I think I. I think my um, gateway drug was an Aperol Spritz because it's a little less bitter. But then, you know, you kind of get that taste for the more bitter. This, this sounds like a, it happened in Rome. Is that incorrect? Um, or New York. I mean, we got a lot of yeah, good Italian restaurants that's in New York. that's true. Yeah. Oh, man. But Negronis are having a moment right now. So. They are. Yeah. They are. So. Okay. So, uh, surprise question. The big five are when do we go from kneeling to sitting back in our pew after communion. Do we wait until the priest sits down? Do we wait until the tabernacle door is closed? Do we wait until the person in front of us sits back so we're not pressing our nose into their back? So that's a very popular one. I, I do want to I want to dig into that one. Yeah. I, I, I had this for later in the questioning, but I, Let's I go. one of the Let's things go. I appreciate about the book is that this is not like uh, a very like fire-breathy, <laughs> like this is the right way and right. all the other ways are wrong. You, right. you give a very even-handed response. This is right. what the instructions say. This is what local cultures do. This, yeah. but, but I am more in the interest i'm more interested in hot takes and saying what we should do <laughs> right so i there's not another thing i think i can say that drives me more insane than when people wait for the priest to sit his butt in a chair right, right. to stop praying as if that's what we're all doing that for and so I, can we just like rule out that is not what you're supposed thing. to do <laughs> now I absolutely would agree with you prior to because i because i think the part of that is clericalism and part of, there's a lot of a lot of stuff that's there but in digging into the Roman Missal, there is actually parts, and this would be a stretch, but there are parts where the the priest does signal to the congregation what to do in verbal and nonverbal ways, and that's part of his role. It's part of it's primarily it's properly the deacon's role if there's a deacon at, at the mass, right? So like standing up for the alley. Well, exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. So I mean, part of that is we do sort of follow the leader, or Simon says a little bit, but I mean, more of that. 
I would want, and, and the answer to that question is that it is not in any way described in the Roman Missal. It says that we're kneeling during the communion, right? So obviously we're not kneeling as we're going up, you know, in the aisle to receive communion. So it's very ambiguous about when we stop kneeling. It doesn't say after 10 seconds or when the hymn is done or anything. It doesn't say any of that. Yeah. And my favorite is the great groan of the pews that you hear mm. when mm-hmm. it's t- when like father sits in. <laughs> Some fathers more groans than others. Yes, yes. yes. Um, <laughs> All right, so back to your about the unusual. The one that I would have never thought of prior to hosting a radio show and taking people's questions on the air is, and this is, we're going to, because we started 16 years ago before we changed the English translation slightly. So it was back in the day when we used to say, Lord, I'm not worthy to receive you, but only say the word and I shall be healed, which is now my soul shall be healed. I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. So the two questions that stem out of that are, what's the word? Like, and people call and say, like, for decades, I've been wondering, I'm like, you have that question every time you go to mass, ask somebody. I feel so bad when I'm answering a question that people have had on their mind. I mean, in good in some ways, but bad in some ways. They've had these questions for years. What's the word? And of course, it's just a turn of phrase, just like saying, you know, if you need something, say the word and I'll come over with a plate of lasagna or whatever. So it's like that. But then the other question they ask from that is, why do we say, I'm not worthy to receive you? Again, that's the old language. And then we go up and receive him. And, and I find, and I've preached on this, and I find that we often get stuck on, in a lot of ways. I'd, I'd say that's a microcosm of a typical uh, spirituality barricade that we have. And that is we get stuck in the first half of the sentence. The second half says, but only say the word, and my soul shall be healed. And the idea is, and we take that from the scriptures, like you were saying, you flip through the Bible, and then you find, hey, that's what we say in Mass. The, real, the reason why we took it more literally from the scriptures is because of what that story represents. A, a, a great stepping out in faith, believing that it has nothing to do with me and it's all about God. And if it were up to me, I would never get in anywhere. But God, I I know you can. I have faith in you. So go ahead. And here I come. And so we get stuck on the first, I'm not worthy to receive you, but I want to be healed. It's one of the many ways in which during the course of the Mass, we ask for God's forgiveness before receiving the sacrament. I, my sister, that was one of her questions. Recently, we were at a bar with my sister, Ashley and I were in. Allie was like, I've always had this question. And she's like, what's the word? What is the word that I'm supposed to be listening for? Now, and I was incredulous. I was like, what, what do you mean? With the, what, what's, what do you there's, mean what's the word? There's as a soon word. as I opened the book up and saw that it was a top That's five a top most five. question, I was like, oh my God, Allie. It's a top five. It's definitely a top five. <laughs> if, if I could put on my like like media hat, and okay. it's maybe a little navel-gazy, but um, callers used to be like a very common feature of radio. And it still is in some circles, but in Sports radio, for example, they've largely gone away from that because people think, ah, like they derail the show. It's right. like, too chaotic. It's right. too unpredictable. Um, but it does feel like there's like a, a ministry in like having oh, yeah. open callers. I'm wondering if if you found that to be it, it helps fill time, certainly. But what's like the meaningful part for you to be able to like take callers from around the country and world? Sure. I mean, that well, just the one piece, I'll give you like a, a really uh a less theological or spiritual example of that. Um, every year on Memorial Day, we play what uh, I was always told growing up is called the 50-state game. So when we were doing road trips back before there was little TV screens in the backseat to entertain the kids, my if we were bored after 10 minutes and we got a five-hour drive, my dad would say, well, play the 50-state game where you look for the license plates and see how many states uh-huh. you can do. So on our show... We, on every Memorial Day, we just open the phones and they don't have to ask a question. They don't have to say anything else other than their name and what state they're calling from. And we take calls from all 50 states and all 10 Canadian provinces in now two hours. We used to do in three hours. So part of it, in response to your question, is it's amazing that in this day and age, little old me with a collar who didn't invest billions of dollars into satellites launched into space can just turn on my microphone and be reaching that many people. And wouldn't St. Paul, the namesake of my community, the Paul's Fathers, wouldn't St. Paul have given his left femur to be able to reach that many people at once? So part of it is that, the, the just being grateful for the technology and the impact that that can have. Um, but there certainly are uh, many times, I mean, we like to talk to listeners just because it's kind of fun. Um, it has surprised me. I've been doing radio ever since I was in college. Um, at first, music radio. So that's a little different where you're like, hey, you're playing the hits. And coming up, it's the top ten. <laughs> so, I mean, that's different than the, what people describe as such an intimate medium. Because in most cases, you don't see the people that you're listening to. And 
oftentimes they're in headphones, literally inside your head. And, and that people, microphone is pretty close to your mouth. Exactly. And people have to do, in their mind, they have to create the word picture. It just is, becomes very intimate. On our show, you know, we also, there's three of us on the air, and I've, I've been on the air 16 years with my co-host, so that's very much, it's us in our lives, and we're both very extroverted, so there's not a lot in my life that does not hit the microphone every day. And people, I've had people come up to me and almost start crying and say, I just, I feel like I know you, you're part of my family, and of course, I've never met them. I've had some people, and this is very moving, say to me, like, well, I live halfway across the country, Father so-and-so is my pastor, but you're my priest, Father Dave. And so it is an amazing medium that can allow for ministry. We do have call-in segments where people ask for pastoral counseling or what we call fatherly advice, just like an advice segment, essentially. And uh, and we play some games and people get to win prizes if they pay attention to my homily. That's a, that's Every priest should do that. If you give people gifts, if they get questions right after the, you don't have people paying attention a little more. Yeah. <laughs> I do feel like there's like a... a I guess this is sort of what confession is if you live in a big city, right? To be able to like reach out to a priest or someone who is going to give you advice um, that's anonymized a little bit, uh, which of course like happens in cities with multiple parishes. You can do that in confession. But for a lot of people, right? Like going to confession, I'm just hearing from a guy who I know knows my voice right. <laughs> and right. it's it's right. a little difficult. So I imagine that's got to be such a gift for, for callers to be able to do that because everybody – you just want a priest to turn to sometimes, and sometimes personal dynamics get in the way of that. And I have been surprised at how fairly, you know, revealing people are, because it's almost kind of like they're saying, yeah, just between you and me, Father. I'm like, yeah, there's 33 million people that have this channel. <laughs> <laughs> one thing that struck me about the questions in the book is that from one angle, they could like come off as, you know, a bit like nitpicky or overly scrupulous it's like oh how deep do i bow do i genuflect here do i how do i pronounce amen or amen right, yeah. but i think amen. <laughs> clearly <laughs> not his answer <laughs> i know i know i know he wants it very um, clear <laughs> but I, I think if you look at it in a different way it's revealing of just a, a great care that yeah. people are bringing to the mass um so i'm wondering what like getting away from the rules if you have general like guidance about about the disposition. So you don't know all the rules. How can you still, you know, approach mass with the proper reverence? Yeah, I mean, I'll use one sort of microcosm ritual action as an example. And that is when we receive communion, uh, if either of you have ever distributed communion as lay people, extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion, you'll occasionally see that there is a great, a great variety of how people will do that. Now, I was taught when I, so when I was in first grade and we were training for first communion, it was right, like the priest was all excited because it was the first time that they were allowing communion in the hand. So we were like the first class learning this and making like the little throne, you know, St. Anselm, I think says, make the little, you know, one hand under the other and all that. Now you will occasionally though, if somebody's not receiving on the tongue, which we had a variety, but if somebody's not, you'll occasionally get uh, what I call the grabbers. Just yes. go, go for, go for yes. trying to grab the host. Yeah. I guess, you know, I'm in, in defense of them, I guess they feel they don't want to drop it or whatever, but going for the grabbing. And I don't usually get on my soapbox right there in the communion line, but in the book, I'm allowed to get on the soapbox a little bit and say that when we are experiencing the sacrament of the Eucharist, we always receive. It is, it is a posture, and that's the question you asked, it is a posture of being open and a receptive posture that we receive. We don't take take the Eucharist. And and that really, other than that moment, I would say does describe, even if you don't know all the whys and all the rules and the do's and the don'ts, if you walk into that church and think not, what am I going to get out of this? But uh, here I am to receive. Um, I mean, certainly like a, like Ignatius' beautiful prayer about take, Lord, receive, and just t take everything that I have. But here I am just to kind of not have my agenda for an hour for a change and not only be here about here's my laundry list of, of you know, a, a petition of, of prayers, which, of course, there's a time for that. But just to really be open. I mean, even, even if somebody is, is new to Mass or somebody's coming to us, I mean, I'll often tell them, you know, don't be nervous that you're doing something wrong. Just kind of watch what people are doing and, you know, follow when they stand up or, or don't or whatever. Nobody's going to ostracize you, we hope. I mean, yeah. Jim over there might. There's but, always okay. a little, like a church lady, usually. It's like, well, how come you aren't doing that? Um, but in general, to just kind of experience it. And that and that actually is, is pretty key. In, in the early centuries of the church, when people were learning and coming into the church, we didn't, what we do now, teach them everything and then 
have them experience the sacrament. It was exactly the opposite. You, ex- you sight unseen, they poured water over your head, and then you're like, what the heck was that? And then you spend weeks, if not months, unpacking what that meant. And we've, we lose, not just in the church, I would say just modern society. We don't like that. We like to know what's coming. We like to see the contract and all that kind of stuff. We read the terms and conditions How before, long it's before we last. agree. Yeah, what's this going to be? And so that's... That's hard for us to just kind of genuinely experiencing something, to open yourself to experience something. But that is one of the pieces of advice that I give to people. In fact, it it does come in. In fact, I think I mentioned this in the book where people ask about like following along with the Eucharistic prayers. In fact, there was was one of the questions was, how do I know which Eucharistic prayer the priest is going to pick? Because I like to follow along. And I gave a few little tips to that kind of giving them their due and answering the actual question that they ask. But oftentimes I take liberties and go off in a different direction. And I said, if you'll permit me, how about this is a suggestion? Put the book down. It's it's a ritual. It's not a script. Sometimes people like to watch the little captions these days and they're on their TVs. I hate that. Yeah. I only have to do that with Dairy Girls. Have to do it with Dairy <laughs> Girls because you cannot understand what they're saying. And I think we do have the temptation with mass to want to know what's coming or or for whatever reason. Now, there are people, there are genuine reasons. I mean, if somebody wants to follow along with Mass because their priest is hard to understand because of a language barrier or it's not a very good sound system or or they are themselves hard of hearing or whatever. Or is monotone. That's, well, that's <laughs> wonderful. And that might give a little animation to it. But aside from those, and I think I mentioned that, but aside from those, I recommend just, you know, put the book down. And, try. and in fact, oftentimes I'll have this conversation with wedding couples. Because the, des- the the desire is, the few that des- choose to get married in the church, the desire is, let's print everything in the bulletin. Because there's going to be one or two people there that don't know it. I'm like, there's going to be plenty of people there that don't know it. Just like, do you really want your parents and your family at the moment that's your once-in-a-lifetime moment to be looking down at the script? If, you if that means they're not that. taking a photo on the iPad, well, then yes. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes, that is what I want. But I mean, think of that moment. And do we really want to have our heads buried down in the in the book? As opposed to, well, maybe I don't know what that is, but I'll ask somebody later. You know, so that that would certainly be a, a more general. It took a long time to answer, but a long. This is why I do two hours every night. So, I mean, a more general way to say, what's my disposition at mass? It's to be open and to receive and to experience it with all my senses and not necessarily go, where am I in the script? I remember when I was a little kid, I, I, the only thing I knew about Mass is that once we get to the Our Father, we're almost done. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, you totally have all those markers. You know, speaking of little kids, and I think lots of adults will say this too, you know, if you really push them, they'll say, you know, the re- reason I struggle with going to Mass is because it's boring. Yeah. Um, and there are a lot of ways that people in the church respond to that. And, you know, I'm certainly guilty of this is saying, well, you you know what? You just want a rock show. You want to be entertained. You don't want to, you know, like you're there to worship. Like that's the real issue. But I I think there's something to that, right? It is, I think, whispered enough among the people of God that maybe there is some truth to it. I've always thought that one of the reasons it is boring for a lot of people is that we don't know what's going on. Right. right? And because you can crank out a book full of questions like this. do you think that's like a way to make it less boring if someone's oh, listening right there? And I think it's the spirit of the Second Vatican Council. And I don't think Vatican II fathers would have said, it's boring in Latin, let's make it exciting. But when we talk about full active and con- conscious participation, the, the the gist that was begun by translating it into the vernac- vernacular so that we could at least begin by understanding the words that he's saying, even if he's monotone, even if he's got an accent, that I mean, that's way different from like people were praying the rosary because they had no idea what was going on. The reason why we had the bells is one of my top five questions. The reason why we used to have the bells is that people needed to know when the consecration was happening because they weren't paying attention. Wake them up. Wake them up. <laughs> or, or, or even giving them the benefit of the doubt, they're praying the rosary or they're doing whatever else. Just because it, it was, he's facing the other way. There's no microphone. It's in Latin. I don't a language I don't understand. So I think we go even further than that. To na- now that we understand the language, the more you can understand and appreciate about anything, the probably the more engaged you are in it. So yeah, I, I mean, I believe it is absolutely. I believe it is a way that people can can have more ownership, more investment, and more engagement. One thing we have to deal with a lot working at a Catholic media organization is covering the liturgy wars. And something I appreciated about your book is that it's very much not engaging in the like, what's the better mass right, and right. like, who's more pious. And but 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 I am curious yes. <laughs> what, what what guidance you would give to those who do feel very passionate about their way of doing mass versus 
other Catholics because of something beyond this idea of being going into mass with a welcoming spirit is the idea of mass as a sign of unity and a creator sure. of Absolutely. unity, Absolutely. Uh, which war is kind of the opposite of. Yes. <laughs> and and my, my spin on my zag on the liturgy wars is that it's not that we argue too much about liturgy. It's that we don't argue enough. Right. And that like all these little things that you can kind of have a opinions on as long as you're not being a jerk about them right shows a, shows a sign of care and respect right. right like my my pet peeve about people waiting for the priest to sit down and like right. they're, they're all they're, I, i'm just thinking there are a billion things that we could mm -hmm. actually like nitpick and try to optimize and make right. make for a better worship experience yeah. but I, ashley's question still stands yeah i mean i i would say uh, w that you could with a broad brushstroke say that today these days those that really appreciate value and desire the, let's just call it the older form, the extraordinary form of the right, which is a term we're not supposed to use anymore. Thanks for that. <laughs> but uh, those who appreciate that, you, you wouldn't do that just because you you have to. That's not somebody dragging somebody on Sunday morning. There may be some families or whatever. But it, it's also not just like, okay, well, let's just go to mass. You're doing that because you really desire it into it and are fed and nourished spiritually and other ways. And hopefully... If the goal of the Mass is to do what Jesus did, we're washing feet, hopefully that also translates into we are serving one another and we are living out charity and all that. So um, so on one sense, that to me says, okay, well, at least here's a cadre of people, some section of the population, that we don't have to worry about, you know, forcing them to go to Mass or explaining what Mass is. Because if you're going, if you're going in Latin, you know, hopefully you have done a little... You know, research and you kind of figure out what's, or you have the side by side. You're you're already more invested in it because you have to be. For many people, it is the way to be fully, actively, and consciously participating in the mass. Um, so, I mean, how how we solve these? I mean, we sort of have had a little bit of a solution from the Holy Father, where he's like, "There's not two different rights, folks." And and I mean, my my fundamental answer is in your question that we pray more if you listen to the prayers of the mass about us being unified than even we do that this bread and wine turns into Jesus' body and blood. Uh, like half of the prayers are about unity, about us. The, the second epiclesis of the Mass, when we call down the Holy Spirit, it's about us and making us one. Um, and so anything, you know, within reason, but anything that that pull, pulls away from that, pushes away from that, I think is where Pope Francis is coming from, is, is working contrary to that. Now, obviously, it's not lockstep all around the world. If you go to church in Africa, it is going to be different. It's not going to be identical. And we do allow within the Catholic Church, we do actually have different rights. Now, I think he's saying within the Roman right or within the Latin right, it still should be that. And in the Byzantine right, it's going to be the Byzantine. But there's not like Byzantine A and Byzantine B for people that like, you know, this kind of mustache or whatever. I don't mean to belittle <laughs> it. But but the unity is a big piece. And I mean, but I also think it's just a factor of the interview that you guys did just the other day with Pope Francis. And one of the big things he talked about was polarization, particularly in the American church. And I mean, sure, the liturgy wars are, I think, a symptom of that, but it's probably coming from a deeper place. Yeah, I think that's 100 percent true. We have talked a lot at a 10,000 foot level and we've touched a little bit on some of these questions. But I just as we wrap, I want to remind people that Please. there's 60 like yeah. really like nitty gritty, like cool as Ashley was talking about sure. and we were yeah. talking about that are like really just useful, um, not fire breathy answers that are going to help you understand the mass more. So want to want to point people to that. But before we do let you go, uh -huh. we have one final question. Please. And I've been told you've been prepped on this. So oh, okay. I hope, yes. I hope it's good. Mm -hmm. um, if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? I have to say one, huh? Yep. Okay. Well, if I have to say one, then uh, because... It, just this week was the first anniversary of my mom's passing. Got to go with mom. And it may have happened already because I've definitely experienced already some interceding. So whether she's gone through the process or not, um, absolutely the source of my faith. Very strong woman. She was raised in a time when woman, women were not as independent or she never, she never had a job ever since she was married. But my dad died when I was 14 years old and she continued to raise me and my sister and not only all the standard things you need to do, like feed us and help us go to college and all that, but really implanting the faith in us in a way that in her way, it wasn't heavy handed. She was very, very into her faith. I mean, she was charismatic renewal. She's been to Medjugorje and all sorts of Marian apparitions around the world. And for us, it's kind of like, wow, mom's really into this. So when it was us, it was kind of like laid out on a table and say, 
here's a delicious buffet. I hope you enjoy, as opposed to force feeding us. And for both me and my sister, that really worked well. So she's responsible. And also, not just the two of us, because our house in our backyard was big enough that all the youth group stuff was oftentimes in my backyard. So she was a mom to a lot of people. So mom, but if I could pick a fictional character, it'd be Commander Data from Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was your mom's name? Uh, Francis Dwyer. Francis Dwyer. Francis so St. Francis Dwyer, pray for us. Uh, the book is Mass Class, Your Questions Answered, and you can also hear Father Dave on the Busted Halo Show weeknights on Sirius XM. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I love being here. I haven't quite finished my beverage yet. <laughs> well, hey, there's still around. time for that. Yeah. There <laughs> is still time. We'll thank cut. you. All right. All right. That was thank awesome. you so thank much. You. Yeah, awesome. thank you. I've been wondering what has happened to you now. Am I the only one who's struggling to move on? Yeah. And now we have some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach? So I want to remind everybody that uh, instead of taking an extended break this holiday season, we're looking to do a mailbag episode, which should be a lot of fun. We've never done this. Um, it's essentially we're looking for you all, the audience, to uh, sort of set our uh, script for us. Uh, you can tell us what to talk about. You can ask us your burning questions about the Catholic Church, uh, my favorite cocktail recipe that I would pair with your confirmation saint, or or, or what uh, Ashley's deepest, darkest regret from elementary school is. <laughs> Certainly. And you can send us your questions on Twitter, in our Facebook group, or at our email address at jesuitical at americanmedia.org. But you need to do so by, what are we saying? Friday? Today? No, <laughs> Monday, December 19th. Okay. That's what That'll be the cutoff for, uh, if you get it in at the end of the day, we will consider it for... For, and we should say that people who sign up to support the show on our Patreon page, they're going to they're gonna go to the front of the line. So if you are already a patron, make sure to send us a note on that platform and we'll make sure we get your question in. And you can do that at patreon.com slash americamedia. And now we have As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. And Zach, I think you're up. Yeah. So this was inspired. Uh, you'd sent me this thing and told me to file it away for a, a face sharing <laughs> segment on the show. Um, and I dug into it. We published a column from uh, someone, Terrence Klein. He's a priest out in Kansas. And he had a take that was, I thought, really insightful. It's essentially, we need a second examination of conscience, right? So the first examination of conscience that we all think of, uh, at least in, in the church, like it's very much along the lines of what have I done? What have I failed to do? Yeah, so this you, is the list you go down on your way to confession. Yeah, did I do this? Did I do this? Did I not do this? Um, and it's very much like focused on the self and what I have done. And he's suggesting that, you know, as part of our prayer routine, we really kind of need to consider other people, not necessarily like what other people are doing, sin, sinning or not, which I also think would be a fun examination of their conscience. <laughs> um, but more it's like sort of looking back at my relationships and saying like, okay, who looks who looks really tired? Who looks like they're they're suffering? Whose face lights up when I walk in a room? Um, what do these people need from me right now? And it's really it's really way more outward focused, which I thought was a fascinating way to reframe this idea of an examination of conscience. Yeah, definitely, because I definitely have found in my life that I do find bringing my friends' needs and. Um, you know, hurts and all that to prayer, sometimes easier than looking inward at my own um, sins and, and desires and, and whatnot. Um, but I've never I've never inserted myself into into that conversation with God about like, OK, so, yeah, here's what my friend's going through. A am I supporting them? Am I making their burden lighter or am I being distant because I feel like my own problems are too big to be helping them with theirs? And yeah, I just I thought it was a really um, insightful way to to think about prayer. There's this arresting. He has these arresting questions, which is look around at the people with whom you live and work. How are they doing specifically? How are they because of your role in their lives? Um, do they need you? Do they feel supported by you? Do they depend on you? Um, do they come to you when they're in need? Do they smile when they see you? Uh, I, I'm like you. I this actually comes way more natural to me uh, in prayer which is not to say that I do it all the time, but instinctively it was like, oh, this is really refreshing. So it feels very much like something God has invited me to do in my prayer life. Um, I think that a lot of times in the American church, we get so hung up on like 
personal guilt and personal sins. And obviously there is a place for that. And maybe the fact that I am so naturally attracted to this other thing that maybe I should spend more time focusing on that. But I tend to think that like our, our prayer life tends to get bogged down because of that, uh, because of that sort of in myopic focus on the things that we're doing right or wrong and the guilt we feel, feel around that. And in reality, like what sin does is it damages relationships with other people, right? It damages your relationship with God, but it, should, it probably is also damaging your relationship to the community. And so you're probably going to get there if you are focusing on other people in your examination of conscience also, just kind of in a, a roundabout way. Like our faith is all, always personal and social. And I think we usually hear about like prayer in a group and with other people in the context of the mass. But the idea of bringing that into personal prayer and conversation with God in this way, I think really is an important corrective to like an American individualism where faith is about me and God. <laughs> or or you hear about like the social aspect in sort of like a macro context. And, and that's so, and that oftentimes is so big that the like, communion of sins. <laughs> yeah. Or like social justice issues and yeah. social structures and those types of things. And really like whittling it down to like the people that you interact with, your MySpace top eight, what's going on in their lives. I, I think I'm going to try it the, these uh, last days of Advent. And I invite you to as well, listeners. We might need to get a Gen Z translator soon on this show if you're going to throw out things like MySpace My Top 8. eight. Uh, look, the real ones will know. <laughs> okay. All right. I will get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Cristobal Spielman. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Lifford studio at American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. <laughs>